Welcome and good evening. I recognize on a Wednesday night in Las Vegas at 7 p.m., there's a lot of places that you could be. And so I really appreciate you all turning out this evening, and hopefully we've got some interesting stuff for you. As we talk about Amazon.com and how Amazon.com is in a huge transition to use uh, all AWS technologies, and we'll talk about that going forward. In the presentation that we've got, I'm going to focus on kind of three things. We're going to start talking a little bit about why, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what and then about how. And I wanted to start with the why, because I think that the industry and the data warehousing industry is in the midst of massive change. And I wanted to spend just a little bit of time talking about why that change is occurring. First, let me start, and I'll just kind of give you a reference point. If you were new to data warehousing, and you went to uh, Wikipedia, and you typed in data warehousing, this is the page in the diagram that you would see. And in this, Originally in databases, we started off with online transaction processing systems, which here are represented as the data sources on the left-hand side of this chart. And they were very good at doing transactions, but if you did a lot of an analysis on the data that you were collecting in that system, you would mess up the response times of the transaction processing systems. So what people did was they took the data out of those original systems, and they would move them over into something that got created that was called the data warehouse. And from that, they would build these larger data, database systems that would incorporate sales information, marketing information, all of the stuff from all of the different source systems. And then, some, in some environments, you would run the queries directly against the data warehouse. And in other environments, depending on the technology, you would take the data out of the data warehouse and you would populate something called a data mart. And a data mart could be independent. An independent data mart would maybe get, go directly to the source systems for some data. Or you could do a dependent data mart that would basically get fed all of its data from the data warehouse. And then user communities could either run their queries against the data warehouse, or they could go against any of these different data marts. So there is 30 years of data warehousing in one chart, one kind of high level, just as a starting reference point. All right? And no, it's not that simple. Now, a little while back, I got asked to give a presentation. And the question was, should we be doing data warehousing, or should we just be completely focused on big data? And so as we're talking a little bit about the why, I wanted to share with you some thoughts on some of the different trade-offs between the two environments. And big data is here, and it's here to stay, and I think you all recognize that. And one of my favorite examples, and I just want to talk about the ubiquity of big data going forward. And how many of you have seen these before? These are smart trash cans. Can you imagine a device dumber than a trash can, right? But somebody had the great idea, why don't I put a little solar cell, a Raspberry Pi, and a modem, and I'll measure how full the trash cans are. And I'll send back information once every hour about how full it is. And now, instead of having to visit every trash can every day with a truck to empty it, and maybe it's empty, I only need to go pick up the trash cans that are full, right? Now, here in this conference, there's tons of IoT examples. This is a very simple one. But the point I want to get across is this is going to be everywhere around us. A couple years back, there was a conference at UC San Diego, and the title of the conference was The Trillion Sensor World. And they talked about, and this reference point was two years ago, but five to 10 years in the future, that it would cost less than a quarter to print a sensor. And the sensors are going to be everywhere around us. You know, and one example I love to give is my wife chooses to put a Fitbit on her, on her hand, right? And it's, constant, it's monitoring her heart rate, how active she is. It tells her to get up and move around if she's been sitting for too long. This is another example of the IoT world and all of the data that's going to be everywhere around us coming back into systems to do analytics on. And this data is a little bit different than the traditional data that we've been putting in the data warehouse. And this is a chart from the industry, and it kind of divides the data up into four quadrants. The first is you're going to have data that's internal to your company, and that's on the south side, and data that's from external sources. And on the left-hand side, you're going to have the traditional structured data. This is where you have columns and fields that you put into your data warehouse, and that's kind of been the historic domain of the data warehouse. Big data also brings into that the unstructured. And so that's what's on the right-hand side. And so this is JSON-type information. Uh, that's the most common that you see in the unstructured world. And it's really important for these IoT sensors because you may take that Fitbit and you may want to do something new and download a new piece of software to it and be able to start collecting new data that you've never gathered in the past. And you want to be able to bring that data back into your systems. And you want it in that JSON format so that you can add those new fields 
and not have to go to your database, which may have trillions of rows in it, and do an alter table to add the new fields. And so there are a lot of similarities, similarities with the traditional databases, but there's also some new capabilities that are really interesting with the unstructured world. Now, if you went to Google and you said, show me the patterns for data growth, right? Here are four different examples that all basically say the same thing. And what it's showing is that the amount of growth in structured, right? And it's shown basically in the top and the two on the right. The amount of growth in unstructured data is continuing to grow really fast. But it's nothing compared to the amount of data that's in the unstructured world. And so one of the challenges, if you've been a traditional data warehousing vendor, you look at that structured world and you see it continuing to grow, and you kind of ask yourself, right, this is still a good business. I still have really good price points, really good margins, right? Do I want to go after all of that unstructured data? Typically, the unstructured data is at a lower value, right, or price point, what people are willing to pay to store it, than the historical financial transaction data type information. And so the vendors are put in this really weird spot of, do I want to change my price point on my traditional product and go after 10 or 100 times as much data, but get a lower price point per bit? Or do I want to continue to have my data warehouse go after this good market, right, growing 12 to 30%, and allow other products to come into the marketplace to go after the unstructured data? And so it's a very interesting quandary for those, those past data warehousing vendors. And part of the reason that, that this is problem exists is we all recognize, right, and you saw it in these previous charts, the amount of data that people want to gather and do analytics on is growing exponentially. The amount of data that you're putting in your data warehouse is typically growing 10 to 30 to 40% per year. The average IT budget over the last few years has been flat to down. So here's the really hard problem. If your data is growing exponentially and your budget is flat to down, how do you solve that problem? How many of you in here recognize or are experiencing that in your daily job, right? The amount of data, how am I going to store that in my tra traditional data warehouse? There's a lot of people trying to produce answers. So this is a standard chart from the industry about the big data landscape. It's been produced for three or four years. I am not going to go through and describe this in any level of detail. But the point I want to make here is that the Valley and the investment community has been investing billions of dollars over the last few years to try to, to build the products to try to bring and reconcile these two things, right? And it's an interesting world because some of the past products that we use for data warehousing were very good at a wide range of things. And so if you were in their sweet spot, they were great. If you got a little bit outside of their sweet spot, they were still good. But in these products, if you're in their sweet spot, they're fantastic, they rock and roll. But you start to get a little bit outside of their sweet spot, they might not work at all. So it's a very interesting time that you really have to bring together and package a lot of these things to build an entire solution. So that's my quick background on why I think the world is changing, particularly in the data warehousing space. And I just wanted to cover that a little bit before we launched into a little bit about Amazon. Now, we're here for AWS, but I come from the dot-com side and kind of the overall business side. And so just real quick, if you're not familiar with Amazon, and I assume that you are, um, here is our kind of our, our corporate statement. And the really key thing here is we want to find and discover anything that you might want to buy online. Okay? There's lots of great text here, but that's the point I want to get across. And here's just an example of the Amazon front web page. Um, I was looking at hammers and bought a new hammer, uh, so that's why there's hammers on the page. But um, you know, I just wanted to kind of remind you that most people, when they think of Amazon outside of AWS, are thinking about going to the website and buying some stuff. And from inside the business, here's a picture of one of our fulfillment centers. If you ever get a chance to go to the fulfillment center, I highly recommend it. It really is an amazing place where um, uh, an amazing amount of stuff is coming in through the, the loading docks. It's being packaged and put on shelves. It's like a three or four story library that's basically on multiple football fields. And everything is packed randomly, which was a little bit crazy to me when I first, first went there and saw that. Um, but it's, it's packed for density. They want to get as much in these places. And when you go to pick something, you get a little machine that tells you and it gives you like library coordinates. And you go and you find a box that's about this big and you open it up. 
And when it's random, finding the thing that you're looking for, like maybe a bottle of lotion, is really simple when it's in there with like a tire for a lawnmower and a bunch of a book and other stuff. When you open it up, it's like really obvious which one you're looking for. And it actually really helps with the speed of picking. But when you walk in and it's like somebody went to a Walmart and shook it, right? Everything is just completely randomized, right? And packed a lot more densely. So that's the business that we're in. And on the data warehouse side, we work with a lot of different uh, teams inside Amazon. And we collect a lot of data. Uh, we have tables with hundreds of trillions of rows. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. But there's a lot of businesses that are really huge. Some of the businesses that we work with inside Amazon, and I'll give you an example here in a couple of charts. Some of them are as big as Fortune 500 companies, even Fortune uh, 200, 100 type companies. Some of the teams inside Amazon. And then there's a lot of startups, right? that are very small and just getting going. And so there's a huge amount of difference in the different teams that we get to work with. So let me talk a little bit about the good of our legacy data warehouse. Um, the legacy data warehouse, absolutely the most comprehensive set of cleansed and curated data inside the company. It feeds many, and I'm talking thousands of downstream systems, and it reaches back into thousands of source systems. It does primarily batch processing. Um, it does do reporting in ad hoc, but the vast majority of the work that's going on is batch processing because it's going to do that batch processing on the huge data sets and then feed it out to data marts for people to do a lot of the, the, the query workloads. We do do about a half million load jobs a day and about 200,000 queries each day. Our system has about 20,000 active tables, which compared to some of the other data warehouses I, I worked out before Amazon, it's really not a large number of tables, but the tables are really, really big. And we're loading, and this is kind of a, 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 a low number, I'll call it 10 billion rows, rows a day, right? Um, and I, I don't want to get into anything that could get us into uh, the problems with uh, forward-looking statements and that sort of stuff. So I'm just going to leave it real simple at 10 billion rows a day. The data set size is about five petabytes compressed. And we're getting four to five X compression. Um, and I will tell you, the amount of data inside Amazon is multiples of that, um, but that's the data that we've chosen to put into the legacy data warehouse. And when we add it up across multiple systems, and we have lots of systems for uh, effectively um, uh, getting lots of query work done, it's about 35 petabytes of spinning storage that, that we have online at this point in time in our legacy environment. And I had the opportunity not too long after I started at Amazon two years ago to go and meet with the legacy vendor and I kind of challenged him that I thought that the system was quite a bit larger than any other customer. And I said it was two orders of magnitude bigger. And the, the VP of engineering looked at me and said, no, it's three orders of magnitude. It's a thousand times bigger than any other customer that we have. And um, a couple things. One, I think that's a little bit of exaggeration. I don't really think that we're a thousand times bigger. But the thing I want to get across is if you're a customer, and your vendor's telling you that you're a thousand times bigger than any other customer, do you think that's a good spot to be in? <laughs> what, what, what is their test environment like? And who is it targeted at? And are you ever going to fit into that test profile? Right? So there's some real challenges with that. And we do have internally um, a really significant use of Redshift. It was here, it was already there when I started. But at this point in time, we literally have thousands of Redshift and EMR systems that are in use. We'll come back and talk some more facts and figures, and I'll give you some details about some of the stuff that I describe and where we stand today. Um, but these systems can range from very small, where somebody just stands up a single-node system, they're doing a project-based analysis, they're going to use it for a couple of weeks and then return it into the cloud, um, to some of these are instantiated systems. They are significant size, hundreds if not thousands of nodes, and they're running multi-billion dollar businesses. Right? So there's a, a very, very wide range. And I brought this chart in just to kind of give you a feel of one of our customers uh, inside Amazon. Um, this is a team that works with vendors. And um, they do about 235 million CPU minutes per month. That's one of the metrics that we use internally. Uh, they support 170 teams. They have uh, thousands of users. Um, they run about 10,000 profiles. In a profile, think of that as a parameterized query that could take a whole bunch of different parameters, and we could run it hundreds or thousands of times a day with different parameters, right? Different regions, different time zones, different things like that. 
Um, this particular team uh, works with about 2,800 tables or about a petabyte of information is their working set. And they produce in one of their downstreams is some BI tools um, that support 3,000 users, 650 which are non-tech, and hundreds of dashboards. And again, this is just one of the customers that we deal with, right? One of the larger ones. Now, most of you are probably familiar with this chart, and I am not here to endorse this as the definition of big data, but I did want to talk about it because it represents some of the challenges that we were having with our legacy environment. One thing was volume. We have huge data sets, right? And there's absolutely no question that we have huge data sets. But some of the data sets that you might want are too large to fit into that environment. It's not at a cost point that we're willing to pay. So an example would be Clickstream, right? We keep a couple of months worth of the Clickstream from all of the website uh, in the, the data warehouse. But we'd like to keep two years. We just can't afford to keep two years. So there is another team that has set up a huge EMR-based infrastructure to manage two years' worth of Clickstream and allow people to do that analysis. And we've limited the amount of data that we put in the data warehouse to fit within our means. In terms of velocity, there are many real-time systems inside Amazon. There's real-time pricing, where we're looking at, at the pricing across the web on different components and adjusting prices in real time. But those systems don't go through the data warehouse. The data warehouse is a 24-hour batch. And as we find that, my experience from the industry before I came to Amazon, that's kind of an outlier at this point. Most retailers really went to near real-time on most of their systems probably five to 10 years ago, right? And so that's one of the things that we're very actively working on as we're creating our new environment, is making sure that our velocity is much better than where it has been in the past. In terms of variety, we're very structured in terms of the data warehouse. So it's tables, columns, um, and rows. And a lot of that very rich data that we're seeing from other systems, the JSON data, uh, internally we use a, a format that's very much like JSON or a structured JSON that we call ION that AWS is going to be uh, releasing has released and will be incorporating into a lot of their different products in the future. Ion is, if you're familiar with Mongo and you know Bison, Ion is a lot like um, Bison. It's basically a typed JSON language. And we want to be able to incorporate all of the richness of the source systems. When they add a new field an hour ago, we want to be able to capture that and not lose the data that we're doing now as we're loading it into our legacy environment. And then the last of the four Vs is the veracity. Uh, we spend a lot of time making sure our data is very good quality, but like in every environment, we do have challenges, and we're always looking to make that better. And that's one of the things that we're looking for um, big improvements as, as we move forward. And in one picture, I wanted to summarize kind of the, our legacy environment, right? And it's kind of the Swiss Army knife. It does everything, right? And it's got all of these wonderful tools in it, and I guess the question I would look for, when you think about this, it's a great thing to have in your pocket and to be able to have a tool when you need it. But if a craftsman came to your house to do some piece of work and he whipped out a Swiss Army knife, what would you think? <laughs> right? It's probably not the best scissors, it's not the best pliers, it's not the best knife, it's not the best of any of those things. It's not really the tool that you might want to be using but it's relatively good at just about everything. So I joined two years ago, and we had lots of long discussions about what it is that we wanted to do and how we wanted to involve, evolve this legacy environment. And here's kind of some of the, the core things that we were really looking for and what Jeff Wilkie challenged me with. The first and most obvious thing is the legacy environment was not scaling with the Amazon business. And Jeff Wilkie, the CEO of Consumer, basically spends a lot of his time thinking about, we're growing at a very rapid rate. We've been doing that for a long time. We hope to continue to do it. What are the things that could prevent that level of growth from continuing? And one of the things that he had identified was the analytic environment. And so his number one mission for us was, I need an environment that scales with the business. The second thing is, we want to be good partners to AWS. We want to help AWS scale, and they're fantastic partners to us. I have absolutely nothing to say about the work that they're doing and all of the great uh, partnerships that we have. And we really want to improve these technologies, and we want to dog food them 
So when your business is at Amazon size and scale, and when you're trying to solve some of these problems, we've already pre-tested it, and we've already scaled it, and we already make sh have made sure that it works at Amazon scale, and then we can work with effectively any company in the world and be able to solve their enterprise problems. We also saw unique user groups. One of the user groups, very business-focused, wants to continue to have SQL, wants to continue to use business tools. But emerging is people who want to do analytic applications and approaches, including things like machine learning and programmatic analysis. That was not well supported in our legacy environment. And so we want to make sure as we produce the new environment that we fully meet all of the requirements for the people who want to do that. And that's a really key, another portion of having Amazon scale long term is to have more and more of what used to be human processes be accounted for in the software. And, and this is one of the things that enabled it. And the last thing, and I'm going to create a couple of terms here. Um, the old environment, I'm going to call bring your own query. And what I mean by that was we had a web page, and you could take a piece of SQL, and you could submit it to that web page, and you could schedule it. And we would run it for you and send you the results in several different formats. right? And so you kind of bring your query to the system. We run it for you, and we give you the results. That's a good model, but it's a very centralized model. To that model, we wanted to add bring your own cluster. And bring your own cluster basically says, you as a business unit, you can decide how much performance. You can decide how much compute. You can size the system to your business needs. We'll get you the data. But you can bring your own clusters into that environment. We can do the job scheduling. We can help you run the queries. But you get to pick how much compute that you bring. And so overall, we called that bring your own cluster. And that was definitely something that we wanted to support. So at a high level, um, this is the environment that we're trying to build, and we are layering all of the AWS utilities on top of that as our tool set. Okay? And as a basis, what we want to do is create a data lake, and we wanted to do that uh, in S3. And the key thing that we want to do is separate storage from compute. So we are able to scale the compute for every team completely independent of um, the, the storage infrastructure. That was not possible in the old environment. We had to scale the storage and the compute in parallel in all of the different systems that we were using. Now, the next part here, some of you will take a little bit of offense to it. Uh, I'm going to keep it at a very high level. And I understand that this is not absolutely true, but I think it's mostly true. In terms of Amazon Redshift, we really want to use that for the people who are interested in SQL analysis. Okay. Redshift can do much more than that, but for the most part, Redshift is really where we're going to have the business users and the business tools going. And then separately from that, the people who want to do the programmatic access and the functional programming, they will be biased towards, in the machine learning, they will be biased towards EMR. Now, I recognize that Redshift can do some machine learning, but overall, uh, most of, the, most of the, the work going on will be going on in EMR in that space. And what we have done and what we have been working on is creating the Amazon Data Lake, which internally we call Andes. And the goal for the Amazon Data Lake is we want to be this, the place that people go to, to the data producers. This is the place where they go to put their data. And data consumers, this is the, the place where they go to find the data that it is that they're looking for. And EMR can, without having to load into HDFS, EMR can directly access the data inside the data lake. And so we can have many EMR systems going directly against the data lake. Redshift today effectively has two modes. The one that we have been using is loading the data into Redshift and putting it in its file system. But a few months back, Redshift introduced a feature called Spectrum. And it's been talked about here in the show in many different places. Spectrum allows us to put, keep the data in the data lake and be able to use Redshift but access the data as it exists in the data lake. So in our environment, we have been working with the Redshift team. Uh, we've got betas going on right now, so some early prototypes and beta activity going on, and we expect to release that at the beginning of the year uh, in real production and real scale. Now, this is an interesting chart, and I'm going to come at this for a couple angles. First of all, if the right-hand side looks a little blurry, that is on purpose. Um, the lawyers asked me to blur it, and I also have trimmed off the, the, on the outside ring, they were table names. And so I have purposefully truncated them so that you can't see the actual table names. But that is a D3 chart. 
Each of those data points on the outside is a table name. And each of the blue lines on the inside of the chart is a join that goes on with that table. And so one of the things that we did in trying to analyze the data lake and whether or not this environment would work was we went through every community of our legacy environment. And there were 2,300 different user communities. And we looked at every query that they had run in the last year. And we analyzed what tables they looked at and, we, and what tables they joined with. And we found something that was both very important and uh, very real. Now, I'm aware of data warehouses out there in the industry that have a million tables. Okay? Right? And I don't think that that's really that odd. But can I ask you, how many of you can keep track of a million tables? How many of you could figure out which of those million tables that you would need to use? And the answer is a million's a really big number. Right? And in fact, the 20,000 number that I talked about before in the Amazon uh, legacy environment, that's also a really big number. In, in a lot of environments, they create something called the semantic layer. And the semantic layer goes into a particular user community, and it gives them the subset of the tables that they're really interested in. And that's the effect that we saw here on the way that the legacy environment was being used. These 2,300 different user communities, right, on average, each user community, and there could be hundreds of people in a user community, right? On average, they looked at 49 tables. The max, the outlier, was 598 tables. So it might not be possible to put all of this stuff on one system, but if we are using these systems not as trying to build an enterprise data warehouse, but if we're using the data lake as the enterprise data warehouse, and we're using dependent data marts as the primary engine for people to go do query workloads, if they're only looking at 600 or less tables, now all of a sudden that's, that's not only doable, it's easy. And so this is a really key learning that um, you know, effectively teams don't need access to all of the tables and they don't need to build thousand node systems for all of the tables. They need to be, build the systems at the size that they, to hold the data that they're, they're interested in. I'll use the forward button and not the back button. Okay. So remember back to that data warehousing chart? I showed you the very first one on the history of data warehousing. So the chart has evolved a little bit, but not all that much. On the left-hand side, we have lots of great AWS source systems. And we're using Amazon DynamoDB, right? All of our critical systems inside Amazon are moving to, to Amazon DynamoDB. We're using Postgres for non-critical systems. We're also interfacing with Kinesis so that we can start that streaming environment. And a lot of people have data stored that they produce through a variety of means already in S3. We want to be able to tap into all of those. And in the past, we kind of did what I'll call a log scraping method, where we would go to each system and say, give me all the rows that have changed since the last time I went and checked with you. And that environment worked OK. But the system that we're going to be building out in the future, and right now that we have in beta with four, four different teams that will release early next year, will be all change data capture. So all of these systems have change data capture mechanisms. We're going to basically tee into the change data capture mechanisms that already exist so that we can keep secondary systems up to date. And we're going to feed that basically streaming or mini batch into the data, into the data lake. Once the data is in the data lake, then we're going to spend in the next few slides talking about a new mechanism that we created to make it easy for teams to populate their data marts. So we'll come back to that in a second. But basically, teams will bring their own cluster, right, or clusters, and whether it be EMR or Redshift, and they will bring them to the data lake, they'll get their source systems, and then they will be able to run their queries against those. And on the right-hand side, that top figure is meant to represent services. Immediately below that is the user community. This would be people bringing SQL or Python or Scala um, or Spark, whatever language that they like. Uh, to the, the system of their choice and being able to ask any query that they would want on the data that they need. We're also uh, using QuickSight um, for some graphic analysis. We're using Amazon Athena as a user interface into EMR systems. And of course, we've got lots of teams doing machine learning across Amazon. Okay? So this is kind of how that data warehousing architecture of the past has evolved. And coming back to one of the original questions, it's not really a choice between the data warehouse and big data. Maybe five years down the road or 10 years down the road, it will all converge. But as it stands right now, we really need both environments for all the analysis that we want to do. 
So it's an and. It's taking the, the beauty of Redshift and the data warehousing approach and combining it with the beauty of EMR and being able to get access to all of the big data techniques that are going on in the industry. And with one good copy of the data in the data lake that's fully maintained and, and moving to real time, um, that sets up all of these systems to be dependent data marts and get all of their data refreshed automatically from the data lake. Now, historically, when you do large number of data marts, that's where the whole system kind of breaks down, right? Keeping the data marts refreshed and having scores of data engineers running around trying to keep your data marts up to date. So let me give you a quick analogy. I showed you this picture before. This is the Amazon web page. And when you click on something, behind the scenes, we have an interaction. In the interaction, when you buy something, when you click on the purchase button, you are entering a contract. And that contract is a multi-party contract. The seller is agreeing to sell something. The buyer is agreeing to buy something. The shipper is agreeing to ship it at a certain price and deliver it at a certain point in time. There's tax implications. There's tax subsystems. All of these things go into a purchase contract. And all of the infrastructure to coordinate this deal is what the Amazon website does. When we set out to make the, this new data lake easy to use, we knew that we were going to have a huge number of data sets. And we knew that we needed to help with what we call discovery. And I'll come back and talk about discovery in a little bit. But what we wanted to do, and this is kind of the original chart, this is the vision. Amazon has the concept of working backwards. And this was kind of the original vision chart of what we wanted to do from discovery. And what you see here is something that looks very much like the Amazon web page. But you will notice it's not products. It's data sets. And so you can go to the search bar, and you can type in the name of a table, the name of a field, the name of a business term, and you can hit search. And we are going to show you the tables that match that. From there, you can click on a table. You can see the schema, right? And you can decide whether or not that's the table that you're interested in, and it contains the data that, you're, that you would like. Then you can click on the Subscribe button. And when you click on the Subscribe button, it's going to ask where you want the data to go. And you can give the name of an EMR catalog, or you can give the name of a Redshift system. And from that point forward, if you have access and permissions to read that data, from that point forward, every time somebody updates the data in the data lake, we will automatically update your subscription in your system. Okay, And we're doing it through this user interface that looks very much like the Amazon website. Now, behind the scenes, Right? One of our principal engineers made the analogy that we're really doing exactly the same thing that the website is doing. There is a data producer. There is a data consumer. And the subscription is the mechanism to document the relationship between the two. In big data technologies, that's our team is going to be responsible for administrating that contract. And so you might wonder, what goes into that contract? Well, that's some of the work that we're doing right now. But it's things like, how frequently does the data come from the source system? Is it a real-time stream? Is it mini-batch? It's every five minutes? Or is it once a day? What sort of po support policy is on this data? Right? The team that originates the data, will they take a, if you call them between 8 and 5, will take, they take the phone call and go work on fixing it? Or will they support it 24 hours a day? Right? The source team and the uh, consumer team get to decide what is the right thing for that data set. And it's a contract. And the other great thing about the contract is it's documented. So now we know every producer and every consumer downstream. And we understand the relationship between the two. And we can mine this data to see exactly what's going on and who's using the data. And if they want to make changes to the data or deprecate a particular table, we can look and see who are all the downstream consumers that might be affected. So we've done a little bit about the why. We've done a little bit about the what. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about the how. So in this data chain, we want to be able to collect data, store data, discover, subscribe, deliver, and analyze. And we'll go through each of these um, steps. So the first thing is collect. And we want to have a value proposition that allows producers to want to put their data in the data lake. And the value proposition has a couple of different things. One is it has to be super easy. So we talked about today, we're kind of intrusive on source systems. And we log in maybe once, maybe multiple times a day. And we put extra workload on it and say, basically, give me all your rows that have changed since the last time I went and queried you. Right? And that's a fairly expensive query and can impact performance. 
And so what we want to do is we're already doing the change data capture to, to support the secondary system. We want to tap into that change data capture and basically be able to tee that off and send it directly into the Andes data lake. So that makes it really simple as an onboarding process. The other key thing is we want to make it easy for teams that if they put data in the data lake and they, data if they validate that the data is correct, right, and we'll give them the tools to do that validation, we'll handle all the downstream consumers. Once they've put the data in the data lake and said that it's good, they don't have to worry about whether they have one downstream customer or a thousand downstream customers. We as big data technologies will take care of it from that point on, right? And we would only go back to the source team if we question whether or not the data is actually correct. And we are working right now, and we've got prototypes going on where we can go to um, either RDS or Aurora Postgres. Um, we can get data from DynamoDB, we can get data from Kinesis Streams, and we can get data from S3 and load that data and keep it in, in our um, Andes data lake. The actual data lake is based on S3. It's highly durable, um, and it's great on scale, in terms of scalability. Um, S3 has good permissions, and we have put some extra permission levels on top of that so that we can make sure we're tracking what sort of data is going into these tables and make sure that the right people have access to it, and the people who don't have access to it are not able to get at it. We're also producing tools that will allow teams to do data quality checks so that when they write data into the data lake that they can, um, at that point in time, validate that, that it uh, is the correct data and that the data that they want there is the data that is there. And the other thing is we put in software that allows us to validate schemas. So if a table does have a schema, we want to make sure that the data that you're putting in works against that schema so that all of the downstreams are able to successfully use it. In terms of discovery, again, I showed you that the, we call it the Hoot interface. The Hoot is the website internally that we use to allow teams to go and um, find the information that it is that they're looking for. So again, it's modeled after the Amazon web page. You can go in and very quickly find the information that you're looking for. And we want to make sure that you, there's lots of useful information about those data sets. So some of the stuff that we have today is the full schema. You can see what the size of the tables are. In the future, we will be adding things like in the, the, the looking forward vision, we had the five-star rating system that you know from the website. We want people to be able to rate data sets and put comments of data sets. It's very important for, say, the machine learning community to say this is a validated data set for the following functions and be able to track that. And we want people to be able to go in and add, add information like that. It, it adds a lot of value to the entire ecosystem. And the other key thing about discovery is we want to set up a place where producers can communicate with the consumers, right? So they can go in and see who are the downstreams who are using the data set that they have produced, and that the people who are consumers of it can find out if there's a problem with the data set or they're questioning whether or not some of the data is accurate, that they know who to contact and be able to go back to the source team and be able to work with them on what's going on. Once you have found the data set you're looking for, you click on subscribe. And once you click on subscribe, again, all of the data from that point forward that goes into the, the at table inside the data lake is going to get replicated to all of the systems that have expressed interest in that, that particular table. And some of the work that we have done is we allow teams to, we've created uh, AWS CloudFormation templates so people can very quickly set up a system that has all of the right security and permissions and all of, all of that sort of encryption, all of that sort of good stuff, and use that, that CloudFormation template and then immediately be able to start loading data into that system. We have not quite scripted this all out, but one of the things that we uh, will be doing in the future, particularly for some of the systems that smaller teams that will need help moving off of the, the, the legacy data warehouse environment, we're actually, I think we have all of the APIs where we could script creating a system going through the queries that they've run for the last year, finding the tables that they have accessed, creating the subscriptions programmatically, and loading the data, all of the data that they would be interested in onto their data mart, then being able to go get all the queries that they've got scheduled to be running and run it through, um, we use the AWS tools for the schema conversion tool and, and the query converter, and automatically run all of the queries through that tool it will not get 100%. Uh, you may have been using functions that were specific to the legacy environment. It may not convert 100% of the queries successfully, but we're seeing very good rates, 60, 80% of the queries convert automatically in this new environment. So um, that's some of the work that, that we'll be working on in the not too distant future. 
Once we've delivered the data, uh, we want to make it available. And uh, again, we want to keep it in sync with anything that's going on inside the data lake. And a key aspect is we want to be able to allow ourselves to monitor what's going on, and we want to allow the owner of the Data Mart system to be able to do that. And the data movement uh, can actually come in two forms. One is, in particular for Redshift, we're doing this right now, we're loading it into the Redshift file system. And so we will move all of the data into that. Um, we do allow filtering, so you can say instead of 25 years worth of data, I really am only interested in the last six months or a year. And so you can take subsets of the data. Um, but what we're really looking forward to and what we do with EMR today is metadata only syncs. And so the data stays in the data lake. We don't actually move the data into the target system. We just move where the blocks are on S3 into the catalog. And once the data is there, then the teams can use uh, either Redshift or EMR in all of their glory and be able to do any of the work that you would expect in those environments. And the other key thing, and I, I mentioned this before, but I'll emphasize it again, we want each business team to be able to size and control their own system and control their own environment. So there is not one centralized set of resources that we are trying to manage to the peak of all of the different teams. Each team has complete control over their environment. They get to optimize their cost. If they need it to run faster, they can pay for it to run faster. They get to determine what their SLAs and what their business needs are, and they can scale to meet their own peaks, which may be independent of other teams' peaks. And so again, that just kind of summarized, this is the value chain of how we see uh, the environment that we're trying to set up and have set up. And let me, um, let me first go back and take a look and see some of the goals that we set out. And um, hopefully you'll agree with me that, that we're on the path to, to validate these. Uh, one, will this scale with the business? Yes, because we can handle effectively an infinite amount of data marts uh, coming off of the data lake. We're using all AWS technologies. We do both SQL and the programmatic approach. And we can do both types of bring your own cluster and bring your own queries in this environment. Where are we today? How much of this is real? Well, the answer is a lot of it. There's a lot of features that we want to continue to add. But today, we have 20,000 tables that are maintained at the same frequency they were in our legacy environment. The fun thing for me is we are starting to see people who never had data in the, the legacy data warehouse, they're starting to put data in the data lake. right? And so we're starting to see uh, just a, a groundswell. It's relatively small at this point, but we expect this to continue to, to grow. Um, we released this environment in the subscriptions environment for beta in March, and we made it generally available in June. And here we are in November, and we have 950 systems are already using the subscriptions mechanism. Um, and they're syncing about 20,000 total tables, and we do 40 about 40,000 sync jobs a day, because a lot of the tables have multiple sync jobs. In terms of our legacy environment, um, the new environment, it took three years to run 100,000 queries a day in the, the new environment, right? That was 2014, 2015, and 2016. In this year alone, um, so far this year, we have grown that from 100 to 300,000. So we effectively have 200% growth. We've tripled the size and the amount of work that's going on in the new environment. And while that seems like a lot to me, um, it's nothing to compare to what we're going to do in the next year, right, as we really uh, transition into this new environment. And this is my last chart, and we'll have time for some questions. Um, on the left-hand side, you may be familiar with uh, the virtuous cycle of Amazon and Amazon.com. The idea here is that a positive customer experience increases traffic. Traffic attracts sellers into the marketplace. Attracting sellers into the marketplace creates additional selection. As we see this wheel start to go around, we can lower the cost structure. And the lower cost structure allows us to lower prices. And this is the virtuous cycle. And we see the same virtuous cycle in terms of our data lake and analytics inside Amazon. We think a positive customer experience will increase data sharing. Data sharing will increase the number of providers who are using and putting data into the environment. As that happens, we will get more data set diversity, and we will get teams that had never used the legacy environment to start to put data in, in the Andes data lake. We are already seeing operational efficiencies, and the team has really come along and great and improved our, our pace of innovation. And those things, the flywheel is starting to turn, and in the next year, it really is going to take off. 
And so uh, that's, that's my story. And uh, I want to give thanks to, we've, we've got a, quite a few people here. If you have some more technical questions, um, I'm happy to take them, but we've got the real experts sitting here at the front of the room. And I think that we can handle anything that you can throw at us. <laughs> Question. Yeah, so the question is uh, ETL, ELT, and schema evolution. That's uh, one of the things that we are working right now. In fact, as I was reading email earlier today, we have uh, a, a team that is working on basically a set of rules that we can apply. We, we have the rules of the past, and we're finding that they're insufficient for the, the, the new environment. And so we are working right now to be able to determine you know, what is the right way to do it and how that flows through our entire system. And so we have answers today. We're not happy with those answers, and we're working on the next generation of that. So it's a very interesting problem. Question. Yeah, so the question is, did we build it from the ground up? Um, and I would say it's a mix. There were things from our existing legacy environment that we're definitely using. We didn't feel, and I'll give you an example. We didn't feel that we could change all of the load infrastructure and move all of the consumers at the same time, right? We just felt that that would be too much churn. So we left the load infrastructure in place, and that has some problems, but that's what we chose to do. We've got all the data landed in the data lake, and effectively that becomes our new API for the data. And so now consumers are migrating from the old environment to the data in the data lake. And then in parallel, you heard me talk about moving from the kind of the log scraping environment to the change data capture environment. So over the next six months to a year, we will be going and kind of re-engineering all of that data feed into the environment. But the downstream consumers are not going to see that. They're simply going to see the, the, um, more up-to-date data in the Andes data lake. Yeah, I was going to say, did that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the question is, how does it affect the source systems? Um, right now, we really have not changed that much. And so we're still doing kind of what I'll call the log scraping methodology. Um, but as we change the CDC, we're actually going to take work off of the source systems. Yeah, so uh, it will be a positive benefit for them. There's a question over here. Yep. Yeah, so think of the, the, dat, the data mart as um, effectively a cache of data, right? And so it is a, a read-only cache. The data could be resident in S3, or we could put it in the file system, whether it be HDFS or the Redshift file system. But it's basically a read-only copy. And so we're going to, when the data becomes available, we're going to update that system. We have mechanisms in place that if somebody says, I want to run a query every night after the data gets refreshed, we will monitor that, and we won't kick off the query job until the load jobs have completed. And so that allows us to kind of maintain the integrity and, right, and the scheduling. And so we will refresh the data on the data mart. We'll run the queries when the data has been refreshed for the following day, right, or hour or whatever the time period that people want. And people can create new data sets in their data mart and you know, join tables together and create something new. But what we want them to do is to write that back out to the data lake, particularly if some other team is going to make use of it. Did that answer your question? Not, not quite. Try me again. Yeah, and the answer is it can depend on, one, what was in the legacy environment, and two, what people want on their, um, in their data mart. So it could be star schema. It could be a lot of different things. It could be a more normalized model. Um, different tables have different access patterns, and we've done different solutions for performance, both in the old environment and in the new environment. Was that closer to the answer you were looking for? OK. Yes? Yeah. Um, some of the things that we have been working on include the schema validation check. 
Um, we have also been going back to the legacy environment and comparing data sets to the legacy environment. We've been working mo more recently with a machine, the machine learning teams who have created some more kind of streaming real-time data quality checks. And so we're working with them right now to kind of institute those. So those would be looking at things like, well, two days ago you loaded 50,000 rows, and yesterday you loaded 50,000 rows, and today you loaded 30,000 rows. Is that a reasonable thing, or should somebody check on that? And we're trying to do some machine science, and that's, that's a simple example. Um, and we're looking, you know, uh, if people put ranges on data, a max value and a min value, we check against those things. So I would say it's relatively simplistic, but we are really moving into the machine learning world to, to try to do some more sophisticated checks. Did that answer your question? Great. Question here. Yes. You know, in the history kind of the legacy environment, it was mostly preset. Um, we do allow teams to do different manipulations of the data when it goes into their data mart. So one example that I gave prior was, you know, pick, show, do me six, six months worth of data, not 25 years worth of data, right? Because I don't want to store all of that. My query set doesn't need that. We also allow people to pick sort and distribution keys, things like that. And we're always interested in learning what other performance tricks teams might be looking for so that we could incorporate that in and make that part of the subscription process as well. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the places, again, that's very big inside Amazon, but people have been doing that with kind of the source systems and setting up their own infrastructure for that, and they have not used the historic, the legacy data warehouse just would not have worked in that environment. And so in the world that I came from, there was a lot more real-time data warehousing than currently exists at Amazon, but I see as we go forward that we're going to kind of be able to bridge those worlds, and there's some design patterns like being able to not only have Kinesis land data in there, but have Kinesis be able to feed other downstream systems. And I don't know that we're going to force, we're not going to force people to go back and rewrite existing systems, particularly when they're working, but I think that we'll give some other design patterns and make it available uh, that haven't been available in the past. Question back here. Yes. Yeah, so, so the question's about SLAs, and it's an excellent one. Um, what we are finding is that the legacy data warehouse environment had a lot of problems in terms of latency and getting these very large data sets processed. And so by moving a lot of that work to Redshift, um, we have greatly shortened the pipelines. And even though there may be an extra hop to be able to get the data out into the data mart, um, we are finding that having moved the, inf the infrastructure of uh, curating the data into Redshift has bought us enough time to be able to still meet the SLAs that were there historically. Now, I, I am not happy with those SLAs. Um, when I started, some of the SLAs, some of the key tables, wouldn't show up until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. You know, and if you've got really expensive data scientists, right, at 8 o'clock in the morning and they can't get their data to 2 or 3 in the afternoon, that's obviously a problem. And we're now seeing some of those same data sets come back much before 8 in the morning uh, with some of the work that we've done. And so we're very aware of that. We have a lot of monitoring mechanisms to ensure that the SLAs, and we're working on enhancing those mechanisms. But right now we think that we've bought enough time compared to the past infrastructure that um, we're okay. The other thing is, as we start to stream the data into the data lake, we don't need to do things on a 24-hour batch basis, which has been the history. And so we won't be doing one huge data set that takes a long time. We can be doing it incrementally throughout the day. And that also will help. In the very back. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we, we're using it as a, a quasi-HDF. We're using S3 as a quasi-HDFS file system. So that's one of the key capabilities of the EMR is that you don't have to move the data from the data lake into HDFS on, on the nodes. And so when you run a query, we're effectively reaching out to the data lake and reading the data in there. And so when, what we're doing is we're populate, populating the glue, the AWS data catalog, with the information about where the blocks are in S3. And so we populate the catalog with the information about the blocks, not actually move the data into HDFS. Did that answer your question? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think that's a little bit more complex question. Maybe we can talk offline afterwards. Um, a lot of the time, what we are doing and what we will be doing is creating a compacted data set that will be kind of optimized for both Spectrum and for the, the EMR solution. Yes, question? Yeah. Right now, it's an internal tool, but I will tell you in our partnership with some of the AWS people and some of the, the field people from AWS, um, see some value in that for other customers. And so that's one of the things that we will be working with them on. I, I'm not going to give you a timeline or anything like that, but I can tell you that um, you know, I, I've been meeting with, on a continual basis, but just yesterday as a data point, and they're very interested in some of that technology that we've been working on. How about over here? Yeah. The data goes into a data mark. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. So they're going to write the data back out to the data lake. They would post that as a transaction that our internal monitoring software would be able to pick up and see. And then it would look to see what contracts are on that new data set and be able to allow other downstreams to be able to trigger off of that. And so we do have kind of our historic scheduling system that we have been enhancing for this, and that would handle all of those kind of transactions and that coordination. What we would do is that we would show the immediate predecessor and the immediate successors, but one of the things that we're working on is to be able to trace that back all the way to the source systems, right, and be able to show what the entire pipeline looks like and be able to, to show the entire lineage. We're not there today, but that's a very key thing that we'll be working on in 2018. How about back here? Please. Can you speak to any issues or concerns around regional? Yeah, right now, um, so the question is about regionalization. Right now, we are deployed to a single region. Within that single region, we do have sub-regions, right? And so the data can be separated out by that. And that's another project that we will be working on um, uh, in the not too distant future. Question. Do you have any, um, and I'm sorry if this is an naive question, but you've got your data lake, you've got things in S3. Do you ever have partition key collisions where one consumer wants to partition one way and another consumer wants to partition another? Absolutely. How do you <clears throat> well, in the Redshift world today, so the question is about partition collisions. Uh, and a great example would be if you're looking at transactions, the team that manages the vendors is probably going to want it distributed by vendor, and the team that manages customers is probably going to want it distributed by customer. As a, just a really simple example. And for performance reasons, both of them are right. And so we could create another copy of the data partitioned differently. That's one solution. Or when a team reads it in, they can read it in with a different set of distribution keys. So that solves it just using distribution keys. Yeah. How about over here? Sir. Yeah, so the question is uh, on CDC, and the answer is there's a variety, right? Um, so Postgres has a set of tools, our legacy environment has a set of tools, um, and we are able to tap into uh, the Dynamo. And I don't know that there's a public tool to do that. We have an internal tool to do that um, and be able to get the information coming out of Dynamo as the, the records are being transacted. And that'll be something else that we would be working with for, on the AWS side to make sure they have that facility for everybody. Back here. Uh, you mentioned about the change data capture. Yes. Yeah, 
one of our solution architects has basically said, don't think of it as a table anymore, think of it as an event stream, right? And I think that's where you're going with your question. Is it change data capture or is it really kind of each row at an individual point in time? Yeah. Well, and that ties back to the question that we were asking over here, uh, that was asked over here. So schema evolution, right now, we would pick one of the source environments. It might be Redshift, it might be EMR, it might be our legacy environment. You can go and make the change there, and then we can rebuild the table in the data lake. That's one option. But we're not happy with that, and so one of the things that we're working on right now is a true evolution scheme, where basically we would create two copies of the table. Right? You would have the one that you're currently running on, and active queries could continue to run, while we're doing whatever manipulation needs to be done for the schema evolution, we can repopulate that and then we do a table flip. All right, I think officially, I'm happy to stick around and I know the team here would be happy to stick around if you have follow-on questions. I'll take one last one. Yeah. Yeah, um, so a couple different questions there. In general, with Spectrum, what do we see as the value? We see the value as we don't have to load the data into a lot of different data marts, right? And people would be able to, for an infrequently used table, right, they would be able to leave it in the data lake and not have to load it into their environment. Some of these data sets are really, really large. And so somebody may up the size of the Redshift environment to just to be able to hold the data and not need all of the compute that goes along with it. With Spectrum, we can take the larger tables and we can make them available um, through Spectrum, and then teams would be able to use a smaller Redshift footprint and be able to get access to all of the data through Spectrum. Did that answer your question? Partitioning is another level that we would have to talk about. All right, thank you all very much. I really appreciate the great questions. And again, thank you very much for coming out on a Wednesday night.